Hey, hey, friends, Greg Kokel here, and the very first uh, show of 2024. We're launching this year, and now I got to do my math. I started in 1990 in February. So when I start in 2024, by February, that will be how many years? I think it'll be 34 years plus entering what, the 35th year of broadcasting. Anyway, it's hard to believe that my um, broadcasting career has lasted, has has gone the way it's gone. I can't say has lasted so long, because in a certain sense, I'm not surprised. Once you get off the ground and you get a listenership, and especially if you have a an organization, an enterprise to kind of help you get going, and uh, that makes a big difference. It's kind of like best-selling authors. Well, of course, they're best-selling authors. They've got really big followings or communities or a big social media footprint. That kind of helps, okay? And actually now it's a prerequisite pretty much to get a book published with a regular publisher. But in any event, um, when I started, I had no expectation that this would be the case. I started uh, with KBRT here in Southern California, and that was before the Salem Broadcasting Network even existed. KBRT was, I think, the biggest Christian station here in the Los Angeles area, and I started on weekends. I think I started doing Saturdays, Sundays, then Sunday, Monday, then I settled into Saturday, Sunday from 3 until 6. So six hours of radio, and uh, that's when I thought, how, how am I going to be able to do this for such a long time? It just seemed at that time that I wasn't well suited for this, and I, for the first, uh, you know, six, eight months, a year, I was banging along, hoping to get callers because of the kind of show that I was doing. And it was a couple of years into that show that I changed the format to the way we have it now with Stand to Reason, and uh, and so that has been durable. And I think I found the niche that I was comfortable in and seemed to perform the best in, and that's worked out. So I'm thankful for that and thankful to start this this uh, this 2024 year with you as my listener. And uh, by God's um, grace and goodness, will continue to make this contribution as the years go on. We'll see. God knows, right? I had an interesting conversation with a friend Today was actually a part of a series of conversations, um, and a little bit younger in the Lord, but doing well and growing well, and and, and showing lots of promise for being a, a a Christian who is productive in the kingdom. Let me just put it that way. I don't like to speculate on how any individual is going to shine in the light in the eyes of other people. I frankly, I don't think that's important that uh, a Christian worker has, has his name on books or on marquees or anything, they become household names or whatever. What matters is their performance before their audience of one. Of course, you, um, I think you know this is the case. I've talked about this before. And uh, oftentimes, I think I mentioned this about three or four weeks ago, that when I talk about being fruitful, I am not trying to give a recipe for greatness, but rather a recipe for faithfulness, okay? But but with that in mind, this brother in the Lord had 
had you know has, has got a good start on faithfulness all right however is hitting the skids a little bit and discouraged about some things and as i look at them these are pretty normal but there were two and because they had to do with okay the the shine is worn off a little bit and reading my bible is not so much fun and praying is not so much fun and now what I'm a little bit bored with things. And by the way, I understand that completely. And um, I don't think that there's a Christian that has not experienced seasons of this. And I want to say on a regular basis, but I don't necessarily mean on a frequent basis. I'm not saying that we go up and down and up and down and up and down all the time. But we do go up and down. And C.S. Lewis called this in... Uh, screw tape letters, the law of undulation. <laughs> and that is because humans are odd creatures, the way Lewis would characterize it, that is, with one foot in time and one foot in eternity. Um, the, 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 the best stability that they can establish is kind of an undulation, an up and down and up and down, because circumstances change, our emotions change, feelings change, everything in flux, and so that's going to have an influence on the way we subjectively experience our Christian life. And a lot of this has to do with temperament, too. I, I would suggest, I suspect, most of the people that find this show, this organization, satisfying to them tend to be more on the left-brain side, uh, more less of the affective, and uh, not that we aren't affective and we don't have feelings, we do, but it's not really where we, where we live. And those who are more affective would be less inclined to be taken with the kinds of things that we traffic in here at STR. Okay, so there's a disposition that affects some of this. But nevertheless, it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to go through these ups and downs. And part of it, I think there's an element, let me just call it spiritual warfare. And the other part, I just want to call it, all right, um, what do I want to call this other part? I'm not sure yet, but I'll get to that in a moment. And my friend, as I mentioned, there's a spiritual warfare element here, wasn't quite um, clear on what I meant, probably because I hadn't been clear when I mentioned it. So I want to offer some clarity to that right now. The way to understand how the devil works in the lives of Christians is to look at what the Scripture says about that. No duh, right? But but there's more going on than just Ephesians chapter 6, which is probably the most lengthy passage talking about the reality of spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places that bring trouble on Christians. And Paul is clear to say there that the real fight we fight is against those guys, not against the proxies that stand in between, the human beings that have been misled and deceived by those forces of powers. And it's the human beings we're going face to face with, but really the genuine battle is behind them. So what is the nature of the battle? It identifies the battle and identifies the kind of protective armor 
that we ought to be, and I'm going to put quotes around this now, wearing. Because this idea of spiritual armor that we wear is a metaphor. I remember many, many years ago when I was um, a younger Christian and misunderstood some of this, part of my prayer included me saying, Lord, I'm putting on the belt of truth, and I'm arming myself with the helmet of salvation and my breastplate of righteousness, and I'm just walking through the steps of these pieces of the armor. But I don't think now that's what Paul had in mind. He had in mind the substance of those issues. You can't, you can't arm yourself with the belt of truth unless you understand the truth. So to arm yourself with the belt of truth is to know truth versus error. It isn't to say, I'm putting on my belt of truth. You get that, right? I mean, it was kind of—it's a little embarrassing to say that now, but I suspect there are other people who've done the same thing. Okay? And um, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I don't say, okay, now I've got my sword. No, you have to have the sword, the content, the substance of God's Word, hidden in your heart in, in, in substance in order for you to stand— against the devil and use it as a weapon, like Jesus did in what, Luke 4? The temptations against the devil. Or maybe it was Matthew 4, I get those mixed up. But early on, you know, there we have that example of Jesus using the Word. But you have to know those things. So, first I just want to say that um, that there is a, a armor that we need in place to protect us against spiritual warfare writ large because I haven't talked about what that looks like in substance. But I, but Paul says, there is this battle. It's against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, and there are things that we have to be able to use that function like armor for us. And you could look at the particular pieces and then cash them out. What does this mean, the belt of truth? Well, we have to know the truth. If we don't know the truth— we're going to be vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy, all right? So, I have also talked in other times. Now I'm getting more specific. That's the general stuff. How does the enemy attack? What is the nature of spiritual warfare? And I don't think that um, it's as kind of generalized and ambiguous, I'm under attack, there's the devil out there trying to mess with me, as some people make it out to be. And I just have to pray against the devil. I'm not even sure if that's appropriate. You know, when Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer, he didn't say, talk to the devil. He said, talk to the Father about the evil one. Or actually, literally, he said, deliver us from the evil, not deliver us from evil. There's a definite article there. What does that mean, the evil? I'm not sure. Some of your translations say the evil one. So when I pray that verse, I pray both ways. Deliver me from evil and the evil one. It's a good prayer either way. I'm covering my bases. But I don't think that's really the central feature of spiritual warfare. I think the central feature of spiritual warfare, especially when you consider what Jesus says about the devil, that he is a liar, and he speaks from his own nature. Truth is not a value to him. He speaks lies, and he always does. This is the way he operates. And by using lies, he holds the whole power 
I'm sorry, he holds the whole world in his power. He dis- blinds the eyes of the non-believer, 2 Corinthians 4. He holds the whole world in his power, 1 John 5. Uh, he, the, the world is held captive by him to do his will, 2 Timothy 2. So we see there's this capability the devil has to make slaves out of the world, and he does that by deception. And the antidote to deception, the antidote to lies, is truth. And that's why the belt of truth is the first part of our spiritual armor, because it's the first thing that's necessary to stand against the main feature of spiritual conflict. And this is why I think Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Well, that sounds cool. What's he talking about there? These are divinely powerful weapons. Okay, what are those? Next line. We are casting down speculations. What's a speculation? Like a theory, right? We are casting down speculative theories in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul talks about in Ephesians and other places that we should have our minds renewed according to the truth. So here we have, in the Second Corinthians passage, an identification of our minds being conformed to true things by casting down and destroying the speculative false things raised up against the knowledge of God. Okay, what's, what's a fancy two-bit theological word for that? Apologetics. <laughs> Apologetics, making a defense for the truth in the face of lies. <laughs> That's what Paul's talking about. So, in other words, given that a massive aspect of spiritual attack is uh, is a, a uh, advancing of lies against the truth in the face of the truth, then it's a spiritual warfare enterprise to oppose the lies with the truth and cast down those speculations and those lofty, high-minded things that people raise up against the true knowledge of God. Okay, that's a piece of it now. By the way, that's a big piece. I actually think that's the majority of spiritual warfare is done in the arena of truth and lies. Okay, but there are other ways that the devil can make life hard on people, particularly Christians, because he's not just after people. I mean, he is. And he's the, he's he has them as an ally, because the flesh, which we all have, prior to the resurrection, where it will be gone, we all have that, and it's a big annoyance, and it's a problem, because it wants to take us in the wrong direction. Read Galatians five. The fruits of the flesh are these: nasty, 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 nasty. The long list. 
but the fruits of the Spirit, the works of the flesh is what he calls them, but the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. You live by the Spirit, you walk by the Spirit, language right there in the text. You fulfill the law because these are the fruits you'll be bearing in your life that the Spirit is producing. But you are out of that, and you're, you, you are walking according to your flesh, letting those desires have their way. Oh, you're going to get the nasties. All right, and he talks about them there. So we have a significant part of us that we deal with and battle ourselves. The biggest battle we will ever face is with ourselves, not with other people. It's all that going inside of us that God wants to sanctify out of us, and that takes a lifetime to do. That whole stuff, all that stuff the Bible calls the flesh, that is an ally to the devil. They like each other because they're headed in the same direction. So now we've got this powerful spiritual force that lies to everybody to hold them captive, and even to those of us who believe the truth and know the truth by God's grace, we are still being set upon by Him because part of us wants to cooperate. And that's part of the spiritual battle, because the devil is a tempter. That's another thing we learn. He's a tempter. He entices us to do evil. And when we do evil, and I, I don't think that upsets our salvation, but it sure upsets our effectiveness. When we do evil, we are not effective in doing good. The more we do the first, the less we do the second. Okay, so if the devil wants to mess with Christians in spiritual warfare, he's going to tell us lies, uh, discourage us about the nature of truth, getting us off on, you know, lofty speculations about God that aren't true, Second Corinthians 10. And he's also going to entice the flesh to be bad and do things that God doesn't want us to do, so that will cripple our capability of being effective for the kingdom. That's part of the arsenal there. He's got against us. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, For the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, some people have said, all he can do is roar. He has no teeth. This is nonsense. Because the text there says, seeking someone to devour. He does make noise. He is, he is a roaring lion. The emphasis there isn't on the roaring, and it's just noise. The emphasis there is on the lion that devours. And he's got an attitude. That's why he's roaring, and that's why we have to be vigilant, Peter says. Be of sober mind and resisting him, understanding that we're not alone in the battle. Just read First Peter the end of chapter 5. It's not hard. This is not tricky. And don't get creative with roaring but no teeth. That isn't his point. If that were the point, what's the—well, the, the, there wouldn't be any point. If, that's, if he meant that, then there's nothing to be concerned about. But why does Peter say, be of sober mind? Resist him so that you don't get devoured. Now, how is he going to devour us? 
Well, see, this this is another element here that's open. Now, it, another text says that um, that we we should be careful with each other and kind of keep our accounts balanced and not be embittered towards one another, lest we give the devil an opportunity. Oh, see, there's another little hint about what he can do. He can pit Christians against Christians by using bitterness and unforgiveness in their life. First Peter is talking about various trials in the first chapter there that those Christians are enduring. Some of them are suffering as Christians, qua Christians. In other words, it's because they're Christians that the world is persecuting them. But there's various kinds of, of, uh, of sufferings they're experiencing, according to Peter, in the first chapter. And I'm convinced that it's not just persecution from the world that is being addressed there, but the various types of sufferings that we endure. And some of those sufferings, it seems to me, pretty clear are at the hand of the devil. So this is all part of spiritual warfare. So the devil is going to do what he can, even in the lives of people who are already Christian. And by the way, that's the kind of issue that Lewis is addressing in Screwtape Letters. This is a—I mean, he's using a demon and the demon's disciple as a foil for talking about how spiritual warfare works in the life of Christians, how demonic forces of wickedness in heavenly places can make life hard and ineffectual spiritually for even the believer. So there's lots of good wisdom there. But it's not uncommon that when you are making a difference and doing good things for God, that things just happen. That all of a sudden there is turmoil and hostility and 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 um the kind of thing that where did this come from and this to me seems like a clear example of the devil trying to get in the way of productive christians being productive you can avoid that it's avoidable you want to make sure that the devil doesn't mess with you, then don't be productive. Just lie down, do nothing, and he won't bother you. Why not? Because you're doing what he wants you to do. He wants you to quit. He wants to get the victory here. He wants to make you ineffectual. So all of this broad characterization um, to make a, 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 an application here in my friend's life. And I'm not going to talk about Bible study and prayer time and all that. Maybe I'll do it at another time. We did discuss that, how to make that more uh, fruitful. Um, but, but just the idea that we should not be surprised when we are working hard to make a difference before our audience of one— when troubles beset us. And God allows that to happen. Sturgeon, did I say that? Spurgeon, I mean the evangelist, not the fish. Spurgeon said once, and this is um, a, uh, a citation that I read every week, actually, as an encouragement to me. I should be able to quote it verbatim, after all the time I've been reading it, but I can't. 
but basically he says that he's made an observation that people that God has given some position of influence to, he also gives something else to, a secret cross that they carry as a chastening, lest by any means the devil, that they exalt themselves and they fall into the temptation, or the snare, is the way he puts it, of the devil. So, egotism, pride, is a work of the flesh that the devil can use to create a snare that we fall into to be ineffectual, and Spurgeon is saying that God sometimes engineers hardship over a long period of time, which, by the way, was true in his own life, to keep them humble to keep them from falling into the snare of the devil. So there's kind of an interesting cooperation here. Even though the devil has these dangers, God will sometimes protect us from the devil by giving us hardship. Sometimes the hardship is just coming from from the pit. Sometimes it's not. Or it may be coming from the pit being used by God for something good in our life. All this to say, I don't want any of you to be surprised, as Peter puts it in chapter 4, at the fiery ordeal that you find among you as if something strange were happening to you. That's what Peter says. Why are you surprised? This is standard fare for the Christian. And yes, there are seasons of ebb and flow regarding that kind of stuff, the good times and the bad, but they are all fodder for um, spiritual leverage in your life, the devil using it against you, whether he causes it or not, or I don't know how much he can do. Can he cause you to get sick? Well, I guess he can, if I take Job seriously. Uh, can he Can he cause you to lose your job? Can you cause strife and whatever in your relationships? I guess so. Something He's got some kind of influence there. He can fan the flames. He can light the match. He does not want the Christian to succeed in faithfulness. Read Pilgrim's Progress, for goodness sake. And this ebb and flow with the reality of conflict in one's life will last your entire life if you don't lie down and give up. If you are committed to being a productive Christian for the kingdom's sake, for your whole life, you will be beset upon your whole life by the enemy and by your own flesh. And sometimes it's most difficult when we think it ain't supposed to be so. And then it happens, and then we think, OMG, what's going on here? Where is the G? Right? Why has God forsaken me? Lewis talks about that. That's one of his phrases. Why have I been forsaken? Looks round about on a world in which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks, why have I been forsaken? That's Lewis's words. Ever felt that way? Boy, I sure have. Read Psalm 13. 
This is a psalm I could probably, at least the first part of it, I could probably recite by memory. I've read it so long, so often. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will you will my enemy be exalted over me? Now, was David a good guy? Yeah, pretty much. He had his failings, obviously, but he was a man after God's own heart. Yet he wrote that. Psalm 13, the first four verses. Now, it ends on a more uplifting note, but at least he's starting out with total transparency before God. What is going on here? And boy, have I prayed Psalm 13 over and over and over and over again, different times in my life. But I'm not surprised. I am not caught by surprise. Thankfully, I know better. It doesn't, it doesn't make it easier, but at least it doesn't make it harder because I've been caught by surprise. Does that make sense to you? And my dear friend was caught a little bit by surprise on this, not sure what to do. Well, it's just par for the course. It was part of my counsel. I had more things to say, but I wanted him to understand that this is the nature of the spiritual battle. It's not just against the devil and his minions, but it's also against ourselves. The flesh and the devil are allies. We have a new nature and the Holy Spirit to help us to live it out, but that is a lifelong battle. And I'm saying that after 50 years with God. 50 for me. And you talk to anybody who you think has been in a similar situation, tracking with God for a long time, and effectively, you look at their lives. You say, wow, you're doing great. It's amazing. God's using you. Cool. What's it like? War. <laughs> That's what it's like. War. And, as, and so it ever was and will be until the resurrection. All right, that may not make you f feel better, but it, may, it might not make you feel good, but it might make you f feel better about feeling bad. How about that? <laughs> Let's go to break, and then we'll get your calls here at Stand to Reason. Hey friends, would you like to be encouraged throughout your week with timely, relevant content meant to bolster your knowledge, wisdom, and character? Or maybe you have a desire to be connected with other like-minded Christians from around the world. If so, then you need to follow Stand to Reason on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Not only will you be able to interact with other Stand to Reason followers, but you'll also stay up to date and informed on our latest resources and events. In our current culture, it's important to have something of value to break up your social media feed. So just visit str.org and find the links to all of our social media platforms at the bottom of the homepage. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. 
Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. All right, friends. Um, this being the new year, we are actually starting two new STR University courses that are now available. Tim Barnett is uh, teaching on training the next generation. I think that would be particularly good for parents and youth leaders. And Alan Schleeman is teaching transgenderism, truth, and compassion. Of course, that's that's our that, that's that's our formula, right? Truth and compassion, not truth only, not compassion only, truth and compassion. Um, Jesus came, Moses gave the law, John says in John chapter 1, Jesus came and he filled with grace and truth. Filled with grace and truth. Nice combination there. So Alan will be teaching there on transgenderism in that class. Go to training.str.org, and uh, you can look up those classes. And by the way, if you have never done an STRU class, and it's cool. We've got some 20 different classes taught by different members of our team. And Amy, have you taught? You haven't done one yet, have you? No, we got to get you on board this year. Take some of the pressure off. You don't have anything else to do. Come on. All right. Anyway, we've got uh, like 20-something courses, and uh, they range over a lot of different topics, and they're, they're, uh, they're designed to be easy, uh, relatively easy. That is, um, that we are throwing the ball so you can catch it. That's our, our job. That's our goal. That's what we do at Stand to Reason. We make it easy for you to learn the things that are really important. We translate well, and that's what we're doing in all these courses. Okay, so if you haven't signed up yet, go ahead and sign up. Then get behind the registration. They don't cost anything. And we've had whole groups of people. In fact, our outposts uh, are going through these courses as a group. And that's just part of what you can do if you had an STR outpost. You can find out more information about that uh, by going to str.org outposts. And you might join an outpost in your area if there's one there, or you can start one if you like. All the information is there for doing that. So uh, uh, last thing I want to mention is Tim Barnett and Elisa Childers' new book is coming out just in a couple of weeks. And it was has been really doing well on Amazon. In uh, I lo- looked about a week ago, and I think it was in about the 500 level or 600 level even though it hadn't been released yet. So these are people that are buying in advance, and they're buying it fast. And that book is called The Deconstruction of Christianity, and uh, co-authored by Tim Barnett and Elisa Childers. So it's available for pre-order, releases on January 30. So take a look and uh, uh, get that book. It'll be good for you, okay? And it will help the body of Christ to deal with the, this this plague of de. Uh, construction and deconversion. If you don't know what those are, read the book. You need to know, because it's happening all around us. All right, with that said, uh, let's go to Utah and Lane. 
Welcome to the show, Lane. Glad you called. First caller of the new year. What do you think? Well, happy new year to you and everybody. Thank there you. There at FDR. Sure appreciate you. Yeah, uh, hey, listen, before I get to my question, sure. um, I became a new strategic partner during the campaign this past August. No and, kidding. Uh, Good for you. Yeah, Thank well, you. And it, selfishly, I really wanted to be that 100th new strategic partner that, that uh, put str over the over the goal but i ended up being 98 so okay I have, to settle, I have to settle for that but that's okay yeah so settle that's okay with us good for you <laughs> it's, it's, it's I... just been a joy to be a part of str in that oh, way so thank thanks. you so much for yeah. all that all that you do you are very welcome and and i trust the best thanks that we can have that we can get though we're very thankful for your financial generosity the best thanks is to pay it forward and I'm sure that's what you're doing. Trying to work, trying to do that as best I can. There you go. Okay, Lane, what's on your mind? So my question deals with communion or the Lord's Supper and, and maybe how tightly we should hold on to it and the importance of how it's presented when it's observed. And my, mm-hmm. my reason for asking is, is this. My, my beautiful wife grew up in a denomination that's currently heading for a split between those who kind of hold a more orthodox view and those who hold a more progressive view. When we visit our parents, we go to that church, and, and sometimes we're even involved presenting special music, or right. we've done things at devotionals and Bible studies huh. at, at summer camps that they've done. I've even preached a couple of times at their summer camp. Oh, no kidding. It, but it's, yeah, not, it's not your church, though, right? Not my, not okay. my church. Not our church, yeah. So this, this congregation is led by a pastor that, from everything we've seen, is wanting to lead the people in that congregation toward the more progressive side of things. Oh. And two days ago, when we were visiting, the message from this pastor came across as very universalist in nature. Mm. And for me, it's one thing to sit in a service and disagree with the teaching, but I'm becoming more and more uncomfortable with the idea of participating in communion there when it's presented as something that anyone can take, regardless of belief, regardless of, I mean, there's no mention of trusting Christ alone for Mm -hmm. salvation, Mm -hmm. those types of things. So... I'd love to hear your perspective on it. Well, this is interesting, because um, I um, remember—I was raised Roman Catholic, and I left the Catholic Church for the world when I was a teenager in the mid-60s, and I I just thought, this isn't true. I didn't believe it. And uh, and though I'd been raised with it, when someone asked, do you believe this? Do you really believe that? And what's ironic is I was in the process of defending the doctrine of the Church— and this gal asked me, come on, do you really believe that? And then I paused for a moment. I said, no, I don't. I guess I don't. And now I was gone. That was it for me until the Lord found me about six years later. All right. Um, so, uh, but however, when Easter would come around a Good Friday, I remember the Roman Catholic Church used to do the—has done— not used to, but still does—the Stations of the Cross. And there's a certain solemnity that is brought to that— uh, that that uh, time on Good Friday, that I thought was good, and so I would. I, there was a couple of years where I went to a Roman Catholic church on, on that Friday night, but of course communion is part of that, and and I think I might have taken communion a couple of times, celebrating the Lord's Supper there. But I but now I realize I stopped doing it, and in fact I stopped going to those services. And the reason I did is because my my understanding of the Lord's Supper turned out to be very different from the Roman Catholic understanding, okay? And and so, in what sense was I sharing communion with them, given our divergent theologies about what we were doing? 
And in their mind, that wafer was Jesus' body. It was the essence, not the accidents, not the accidental properties like flesh and blood and stuff like that, but the that the essential properties. And and to me, that that's a little bit of um, maybe metaphysical slate of hand or whatever in my view now as I look at it. But nevertheless, this is how they would characterize it. But that is really Jesus' body that you're eating. Well, that's that strikes me as a kind of almost idolatry. That, that a thing, a physical thing, is given divine attributes and that you're to treat it as divine. So I can't participate in any—I don't, as a matter of conscience, for that reason. And the whole deal, even though I thought the Stations of the Cross were cool, it was embedded in a larger enterprise that I couldn't agree with. So it would be the same reason I, I probably wouldn't go to a Christmas celebration with the Mormon Church, even if they had a great celebration, you know, I might listen to the Mormon Tabernacle Choir somewhere because they have good music, but but I wouldn't want to make common cause with worship with them as if we were both doing the same thing and worshiping the same God under the same terms. Um, do you understand those distinctions I've just made there? Oh, I, yeah, and I would I would completely completely agree with okay. that, especially especially so, here in Utah. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, so with that in mind, I, I think there's something similar going on here with this conversion from a more standard—you use the word orthodox, I guess, small o—sense right. of what's happening at the Lord's Supper, which means it's a, um, it's a solemn celebration of the Lord's death until He comes, okay? And it needs to be— have gravity to it doesn't mean that we're all got long faces necessarily, but there has to have gravity to it because when there was no gravity and there was and it was taken in a frivolous way, it had neg- it had de- deleterious consequences for Christians, according to Paul in Corinthians. And so, in my mind, it was because it was taken in the wrong way. Okay, and there's you can I, I haven't done a lot of depth deep reading on that, but uh, I, I'm in more of the Reformed tradition that says what this is, is a, it's a, it's a token, it's a, it's a, it's a uh, symbol. There's not anything metaphysical going on, either in the Lutheran sense or in the, certainly the Roman Catholic sense, with that, uh, that bread and wine, all right? right. But um, I'm not going to fuss with Lutherans about that, but I will with Roman Catholics, because I think that they've gone way too far in what they believe about that. But what it does is it does present a barrier for me. And uh, and actually, many Lutherans will say, unless you are confessional Lutheran, you can't share the table with us. Now, some people think that's hoity-toity, but I, th- I don't. I think it's a, a principled move by Lutherans based on their understanding of the Lord's Supper. And so I respect that. You know, um, not all Lutherans are like that, but some are. And so I, I, fine. What this brings us to in this situation, though, is you've got a de facto progressive church that isn't a church. If the church that is the gathering of people is progressive in any meaningful sense, given that the use of that word, then they are not the bride of Christ because they deny essentials that 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 uh, are required for them to be part of the bride 
you know. So I, I mean, hesitate to say they're not true Christians because that can be misunderstood. Oh, I think that you're saying that they're not nice people. No, they're nice people. I'm, that's not what I'm saying. I'm speaking theologically here now. So based on what you've said, especially if they're going to universalist, and then the Lord's Supper is just kind of like, hey, let's just—we're all toasting Lahayim to life, or we're toast—whatever, you know. Good luck. Happy New yeah. Year. And that's not what the Lord's Supper is. It, that's why it's called the Lord's Supper, <laughs> by the yeah. way, because it's about the Lord. But if it's not about the Lord in the, the, the particular sense that it was instituted— and that it's described very clearly in the Scripture, then it's not the Lord's table. And if they're making it the Lord's table, and everybody's invited, this is a serious violation of the sacrament. And this is why, because people were not judging the Lord's table correctly, they were getting sick, they were getting sick and some were dying. Yet it seems to me, if you have a progressive take on the Lord's table— or let's say a progressive tape take on the Christian project, then the Lord's table, the way you practice it then, in a kind of universal whoever will may come for whatever this is, then they are it's not no longer the Lord's table, or it's an abuse of the Lord's table, and that's bad news. Right. Well, and I think the sad thing is I think that a lot of this is coming from the pastor. There are definitely there are definitely believers within that within that congregation sure. that I think hold the hold the you know the the more traditional and, and again I would call it orthodox perspective. But mm-hmm. I guess I, I guess my question is, you know, when presented with that with that opportunity again, you know, I, I'm guessing my best move is to refrain and not passively or even actively support how that's being presented by the pastor. Yeah, I think that con- being conservative, err on the side of being conservative here. Because it is the pastor that's leading the congregation in this thing and inviting non-Christians to partake. And so the pastor is is making this something that it's supposed to be, even if you've got Christians there that are taking it with the right heart. The pastor isn't. So, yeah. I, you know, you'd be a Christian taking it with the right heart, but I, if you're uncomfortable about it, it's better just to not do it. Follow your yeah. conscience in that way. Well, and that's and that's maybe what I've come come down to, and I, I appreciate that that confirmation. I mm-hmm. think that that's that's probably probably the the best perspective for me at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it might be okay for you to do it before God, but uh, you know, I don't know. I I just like I could probably take a wafer there at the Catholic Church and understand it in a biblically sound sense. Even so, I don't feel comfortable participating in the way it's being presented. And so yeah. I just say no to that. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that perspective, and I guess the, the thought with how in the New Testament it was it was talked about and the consequences of not taking it in the proper manner. I guess that's a good, that's a good reminder for yeah, me. Yeah, and just read over the passage again, and uh, I, I think there's some— some mystery about how that's to be understood and taken. This is why there's controversy controversy, or differences of opinion might be a better way of putting it right in the Church. Okay, got it. Um, so read over, but still, I think we all agree that this is a sacrament that is for Christians, and that is a celebration of Jesus' death until He comes. Right. And uh, I don't know how a progressive would celebrate his death, especially if they deny 
anything akin to substitutionary atonement, which most progressives do, I'd say. Anyway, yep. so I think you got a clear take on what to do next. Yep, it sounds sounds good. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it again. Oh, all you, that you and SDR do. It's great you, to be aboard. Well, I'm glad you're on board. So thank you, Lane. Uh, give my best to your wife. I will do that. Thank okay, you so much. Okay, sir. Bye. Yep, bye-bye. That was a good call. That was fun. Let's go uh, to Anonymous here, and we've got about uh, nine minutes to go. Anonymous, welcome to the show. Hi there. Hi there. Hey, uh, thanks for your show. I really appreciate it. I listen to it all the time, and it helps me a lot just learning how to think, basically. That's great. That's uh, what we're trying to do. So, yeah, it's awesome. Um, so my question is, I kind of have a two-part question. Mm-hmm. Um, one is a specific situation, and then... The larger question at hand is I kind of want to know how to navigate conversations with friends and family who maybe are following problematic teachings mm. or things that I know are dangerous without squashing their, you know, fervor for Christ or mm-hmm. their their passion for following Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the specific situation is that I have a family member who wrote a devotional um, and he's um, been following the Lord for his whole life, been a missionary. I have no doubt that he loves the Lord sure. and follows the Lord. Um, but many of the devotionals quote the Passion Translation. Um, and I'm I, I'm sure you're aware of some of the problems with, I mean, I, doubt, I don't even like to call it a translation. Yeah, right. I, um, the problems I, with I, it. I have done a deep dive. I mean, I, I'm just vaguely aware, so I haven't looked closely at yeah. that. I think I did once a while back, but I've kind of forgotten. But when you have a translation that's not really a translation, it's often impossible to make your theological point on the paraphrase portion and not on the God's Word portion of the paraphrase. Right. And that is a problem. Yeah, and so I'm wondering, kind of wondering, is there a real problem with using portions of the Passion Bible that are maybe not problematic, as long as the specific sections that he's using are not a problem, or is it better to well, here's just a, do away with the whole thing? Here, well, are you talking about the Passion Translation, doing away with that, or like you're not going to read it anymore, or are you talking about his his devotional that sometimes trades on problematic trans, uh, elements in the Passion Translation. Well, like, do you think it's a problem to include quotations from the Passion in a devotional, even if those specific passages are not maybe problematic? Well, I, I yeah, I think that it's unwise. Um, so, if you have, let's, do you know what the New World Translation is? Have you heard of that? Yes. Yeah, yeah that's Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah's Witness is right. There's all kinds uh-huh. of truth in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, but it's it's got poison in it too. And so I wouldn't want to go to the New World Translation with, with quoting for some legitimate purpose, even if the verse is speaking accurately at that point, because it lends credibility to the translation, which is incredible. Okay, right. so as a as a kind of general principle, I'd rather quote from a real translation that's a sound translation, and um, and you can use paraphrases for this too sometimes, like in. Uh, let's see, Philippians chapter 2, okay, there's this 
passage about Jesus humbling himself, right? Humbling himself as a servant and taking on the—you know, not regarding equality with God, a thing to be grasped or held onto, but humbling himself to be a man and then to be a servant and then to die the death on a cross. Well, the, the Phillips translation says, to die the death of a common criminal. Now, I think that magnifies the point of the text, which uh, it's a paraphrase, but it, nevertheless, it captures the sense of the text. He dies the death of a yeah. cross. Well, that's a that's horrifying, ignominious way to die. And so, and we miss that sometime. And when Phillips paraphrases by saying the death of a common criminal, I think it does us a service. So paraphrases can be helpful to draw attention to the force of the meaning of the text. And it, but but if there's paraphrases that are consistently bad, don't use the. I wouldn't even use the paraphrase. I, 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 I I'd, I'd use something else that's consistently good, even though it's a paraphrase. So um, I, I I you know I tend to stay away from from that kind of thing entirely. The question that I would ask of your friend or family member who wrote the devotional is, why aren't you using a standard translation? If the translation can make the point you're making in the devotional, why go to a uh, a paraphrase? It's part of the devotional writer's job to do the paraphrasing for the reader. If you read any good devotional—I've got a devotional that's uh, done by all Puritans, okay? Uh, so that means all the writers are 100 to 200, 300 years old. Old, I mean, that far back, right? Actually, I think Spurgeon was the last Puritan. Okay, so they're a hundred years at least. And uh, but they, but they, uh, I, they're they're good commentaries on the passages. Um, there's the, the what the what the devotional is meant to do is to give you insight into a pass passage, and to do the paraphrase if necessary for you. This is what pastors do all the time. They read a passage, they teach about it, and then they do an interpretive paraphrase. So if I were teaching on or reading a devotional on this passage in Philippians chapter 2, it's, I could say, look at Jesus. And Jesus, what did he do? He let it go. He 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 left it behind. He he became a servant, and he was willing to die the death of a common criminal. So that would be the way that I'd place, I'd characterize in a devotional what the text is actually trying to tell me. So what is the point of using a text that itself is a is a uh, um, not a translation, but rather a paraphrase? That's the point. It, to me, it's not wise to do that, and 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 it gets you into trouble because you're getting that much further moved away from the substance of the text itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. So uh, yeah. we're just kind of running out of time, and I know your question involves some other things. And I would say the best way yeah. to approach this with someone else is to ask them questions. And you might say with regards to the devotional writer, you ask them, why did you use the Passion Translation? I'm curious. Rather than any other standard, New American Standard, the NIV, the ESV, the King James, however, why would you use that? Well, I like the way it's worded. Do you think that its words are always accurate? That's another question. And in, in in your case, Anonymous, I don't know, do you think that the application they're making, even from the Passion Translation, is somehow 
corrupted because the translation is corrupted, so they're not even getting the right point? Not in the the ones that I've read so far, no. Oh, okay. So it might be that, you know, he's not causing much damage using a paraphrase that's not really entirely accurate. But what he is doing is giving visibility to to a paraphrase that's not a good paraphrase. And that claims to be an interpreter. Yeah, so it may be unwise for him to do that, but I don't know it's going to be helpful for you to point that out with him because he's already in print with it. Right. (laughs) And it's unlikely that he's going to change his mind. He's going to be defensive and tell you the reasons why I think it's a good idea. You could ask a few of those questions just for your understanding's sake. Why did you use that? Are you concerned about it at all? There's some aspects of it that don't seem to be right. Help me to understand it. But you're just being a student at that point. You're not chastising. And I, do, I think with him and the devotional, it's not going to be fruitful for you to take exception with him. Right. Uh, now, in other circumstances, other family members, other teaching, stuff like that, then it might be a good idea to ask a lot of questions about these doctrines that you think may be problematic. Um, and that's always the best way to go about that, using questions. Um, so that's another issue, though. Sorry, I didn't get more to that. Thank you for your call, Anonymous. I I do appreciate it, and I hope that was helpful. And that's all the time I have for this hour, friends. Greg Kokel for Sander Reason. Give them heaven, all right, friends? Bye-bye now.